Welcome to Life Lessons with Dr. Steve Shell. For 20 years, Dr. Steve's 30-minute radio program, Life Lessons, was heard throughout the United States. Committed to comprehensively teaching through entire books of the Bible, Pastor Steve pulls out the deep, eternal truths in each section of Scripture without skipping over the challenging passages. He applies what is learned clearly and practically so that we're inspired not to just be hearers of the Word, but doers also. We're going to look today at the second part of divine discontent. We saw how the Lord draws people to know Jesus Christ, how he creates in their hearts an awareness of of sin, of righteousness, of judgment. Now he draws us to know Jesus Christ and be ready for him. Today we're going to look at at the believer's side of it because divine discontent is something that gets applied to our lives as well. God knew that Israel would not leave Egypt just because he had asked them to. He knew they would not leave Egypt just because he asked them to. They would have to undergo a deep attitude change before he could give them the promised land. After all, they'd lived in Egypt for 400 years. It had become home to many generations and they had prospered there. Their families grew large, their livestock flourished, and they built fine houses to live in. Yet God did not want them to comfortably melt into the surrounding culture, gradually becoming Egyptians over the centuries. He had an important role for them to play in helping lost people find eternal life. And they couldn't fulfill that role where they were. They needed to move to the land he promised their ancestors. But since God will not change a person's will against their will, notice that, he will not change a person's will against their will, he knew that they wouldn't obey him if their situation remained as it was. He was forced to use circumstances to pressure them until their will aligned with his. This is the process we're calling divine discontent. Now, you know, if you put that in a lot of contexts, you'd call it manipulation. Wouldn't you? I mean, God is basically going to put you in in some situation until you agree with him. Now you can say, well, that's pretty manipulative, isn't it? And you know, if anybody else did it, it would be. But the difference is God is holy. In God's heart, there's no impurity. There's nothing selfish. There's nothing cruel. There's nothing mean. And his will for us is what we would want for ourselves if we only had our head on straight. If we could see things like he sees them, if we understood life, if we understood why we're alive, if we understood the purpose of of what's going on in the world today, we would want what God asks us to do. But the problem is we don't see that, and and so we don't always agree with God. Would you (laughs) agree with that? In fact, frequently, when it's really God, I don't like it. I'm beginning to realize that's one clear indication it's the voice of the Lord. I hear something and I go, no, and probably it's the Lord. When it kind of goes against what I want to do and I'm uncomfortable with it, it's probably the Lord. That's how different I am from him. But if God puts me in situations where he causes circumstances to pressure me until I agree with him, is that manipulative? Well, let me ask you this. Is it manipulative for a parent to train their child? I mean, they do the same thing. Where a, parent, a good parent is always training their child to, uh, to be safe, to be uh, clean, uh, to get an education, to learn to work, to be forgiving, to be selfless. I mean, is that manipulative? Are you manipulative as a parent? Well, if, if it is, it's the best kind. <laughs> and you and I have a heavenly father. And our Heavenly Father's doing the same with us. You're His children, and, he, and He's your Father, and He's training you. And He's guiding you, and He's preparing you. It's no more malicious than that. This isn't some kind of impersonal he- Heavenly Judge who's up there playing games with people for some sort of strange purposes that He has in the back of His mind. This is your Heavenly Father, seeing that you fulfill His call and purpose on your life so that you can rejoice in eternity. So you can know you lived well. So that your life can count for something. Something more than money and stuff and prestige in this world. You can count for something real. And that has to do with eternal life. And bringing people to Jesus. So God has a plan for you. Make no mistakes about it. When you give your life to him, he will guide your life to serve him. Just 
the way it is. And it's not manipulative in my opinion at all. It is simply good fathering and a loving father who's watching over us. We observed how Holy, the Holy Spirit brings divine discontent to unbelievers in order to draw them to Jesus Christ. We'll discuss how God uses divine discontent in the lives of believers. Here we go. Number one, God has a plan for our lives. But is it possible believers might not want to cooperate? <laughs> Let's think a minute here. Is it possible that a Christian would not want to do what God wants them to do? Well, by definition, Christians are people who have made Jesus Lord of our lives. Remember that? Romans 10.9 says, if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is and believe in our heart that God has raised him from, a from the dead, we will be saved. And so, by very definition, we have made Jesus Lord of our lives. We've said, yes, Lord, we will follow you. We will serve you. We give you all of our lives. We constantly are singing songs. You are Lord. You are Lord. I'll just do everything you want. I love you so much. I'll follow you anywhere. I mean, we sing that stuff all the time, don't we? Now... He actually thinks we mean it, and we want to mean it, but it's not as easy as that. So in principle, it is impossible to conceive of a Christian telling Jesus no. In principle, since we're people who've made him Lord, who said yes to Jesus, it's inconceivable that we would ever say no to him because we've already said, you're Lord. We found that when a person becomes born again, when they're not simply converted around toward God, but when they really become born again, there's a deep, miraculous transformation that goes on. The Holy Spirit enters us and affects our very inner being. Our mind, which used to be confused about spiritual things, which did not understand spiritual truth, which found the Bible confusing and, 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 and a dull book to read, now, by the enlightenment of the Holy Spirit, we see things very differently. We, we find great, precious treasures when we read the, the Word of God. We understand things spiritually. The, 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 the cross of Jesus Christ isn't foolishness to us. It's our salvation. We love it. We treasure it. We marvel at what God has done. Amen? Our mind is changed. When you become born again, not just converted, not just mildly religious, and not just right-wing politics, but when you become born again, something happens inside. The other, another area that's touched is our heart. We used to love things that we now hate. And we used to hate things we now love. When the Holy Spirit came in, my heart, my affections were changed. I used to, things I would do back when, I would hate to do now. And I would never conceived back then that I would be doing what I do now or enjoying Bible study or worship or stuff like that. It was crazy to me. But now my heart, my affections are all changed. I love worshiping the Lord. I love being with God's people. I love reading the Word. I love serving Him. I love going to the mission field. I remember just dreading the thought. And now I, I love it. What a strange change of heart we have. And our, and our very will changes. We're born into this world with a will set on pleasing ourselves. Every one of us is. We're selfish by nature. We didn't, nobody had to teach us that. It's not your mama's fault. You came that way. And we blame our parents for a good deal of our own sin, nature. Some of it isn't your parents' fault. It's just you. You could have been born to anybody and you'd come out like that. <coughs> Me too. First word we ever learned was no. Or mine. No. Mine. <laughs> mine. I mean, any language on earth, any culture in the world, the, the first thing the kiddo learns is mine. No. <laughs> ah! Mine. Problem is, some people are 75 and they're still doing that. <laughs> right? Talk about prolonged adolescence. <laughs> Growing up, I mean, one of the things the Holy Spirit does, the, the Lord does with his heavenly fathering of us is, is get us out of this selfless thing. Makes us become a person whose great heart now, our will, 
is to please God, to serve God. That's my will. So if my will is to serve God, my heart loves the things of God, and my mind understands them, it's almost inconceivable that I would ever say no to the Lord. But God does not take away our freedom to choose just because we make this fundamental decision to follow him. Making Jesus Lord must be a daily matter for the rest of our lives. It involves many decisions a day. It's not just something I did in church 13 years ago, 20 years ago, 40 years ago. Making Jesus Lord will happen this afternoon. Making Jesus Lord will happen tomorrow. Making Jesus Lord is just choice after choice. I mean, you don't have to do anything more than drive down the freeway. You can discuss whether or not Jesus is Lord that day by the way you react. It's choice after choice, choice after choice, choice after choice of making Jesus Lord. Our experience and the Bible prove it is possible for a Christian to disobey Jesus after promising to obey Jesus. Though Christ has set us free and given us the power to stay free, we can use our freedom to choose to go back into bondage. Isn't that awkward? He's given me freedom. I, in Christ now, I have a freedom I never had before. Now I'm really free. But oddly enough, I can take that freedom, having the Lord having taken the yoke off of my shoulders, and in my freedom, I can go say, give me my yoke back and put it back on my shoulders. Let me show it to you. Galatians chapter 5. Chapter 5, verse 1. That wonderful, wonderful verse that Paul has stated here. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Say that with me. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Say it again. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. You've had that yoke taken off your back. Don't put it back on. And I won't read them, but the next verse is down to verse 12. Paul says, don't put back on the yoke of legalistic religion. That's his whole point in that section. He says, don't go back. You've been freed from legalism. For heaven's sakes, don't go back to it. Now, nobody today would ever do that, would we? Nobody would ever go back and get caught into some kind of cultic bondage and legalism and working your way to heaven. I mean, how many of you say, oh, don't kid yourself, been there, done that? How many would say that? You've already experienced going back into legalistic religion. This is a very real issue. It's a very dangerous problem. We have to stay in the freedom wherewith Christ has set us free. And then Paul, in verse 13, brings up another area. He says, for you were called to what? Freedom. Brethren, only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. He says, don't go back into the bondage produced by lawlessness. Legalism's one problem, but lawlessness is another. Don't start indulging your flesh. Don't start uh, giving in to all these appetites and get re-addicted. Don't fall into the addictions of your... Don't let your temper rule you and your fears rule you. Don't let your lust rule you. Don't let your stomach rule you. Don't let your, your, your sexual life rule you. Don't let, don't let your, the body appetites control you. He says you'll fall right back into a form of bondage. Why would a Christian ever do that? Why would we disobey the Lord? Why would we put a yoke back on our shoulders of legalistic religion or of lawlessness? Why would we ever do such a thing? It seems crazy. Well, I think the answer is no, no more difficult than this. Obeying God is hard. <laughs> Obeying God is not easy. It's not just effortless. Obeying God requires saying no to all sorts of temptations and pressures. Obeying God requires a discipline in my spiritual life of pursuing intimacy with the Lord. It's not simply an easy thing to do. In this fallen world, there are many forces which oppose us. We still experience the appetites of the body. Don't you? Don't you still feel? Doesn't every so often temper come up or fears come up? Your body reacts. You'll see yourself doing, you know, your 
pumping adrenaline. And you're thinking, where's this coming from? It's like you're, watching, you're on a ride that somebody's taking you on. Don't you feel temptations and pressures uh, sexually or anger-wise? All that kind of stuff? Paul, in the 15th chapter of Corinthians, says that when we get our new resurrection body, it will be a spiritual body. You remember that statement? You know what that means? It does not mean that our body is going to be sort of like a ghost. It's ghost-like or spiritual or thin or airy. It means it's going to be a body submitted to the Spirit. This body rebels against the Spirit, doesn't it? This body, you're dragging along like a little donkey. It's stubborn. It bites you. It, I mean, this, this thing is just this nasty little beast that you have to kind of keep controlling yourself. You wake up in the morning and wonder where that came from. You have thoughts go through your head that are crazy, don't you? Where did that thought come from, for heaven's sake? In the resurrection, your body won't do that to you. Your body will submit to the Holy Spirit. You will have no impulses, no urges, no issues inside you that violate the things of God. Your body will be in completely in harmony and at peace. How about that be in heaven, huh? Boy, I'll be glad when this donkey's dead. <laughs> Our thinking is imperfectly transformed. We still, even as Christians, have imperfect thinking. We have varying amounts of confusion or deception. Would you look with me at, at Romans chapter 12? It's right after the book of Acts. Acts, Romans. Verse 2. Paul says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove, discover by experience, what the will of God is. See, i got to get my mind renewed, think differently, if I'm going to find the will of God. It's an important transformation in my mind. How do I get my thinking transformed? How do I get my, that renewal in my mind? Where would that come from? The Bible. I, don't, I think that is the most important element of the transforming of our minds of all. If I'm going to become a Christian and live in victory, if I'm going to find the will of God for my life, if I'm going to change the way I do business, I have got to stop doing things the way I used to and think differently, and there's really only one source for that. That's why I, at every point I try to get the Bible, I push the Bible with, with our children. You'll notice the, one of the foundational things those children are doing is Bible memory. They're putting tons of the Bible in them. With us, you'll have a daily Bible study. And I worked hard on that puppy. I sit up nights to write that thing for you. It's also for me. But I, I really do write that. And, and I wish you'd use it. Why? Is it, just, is it some sort of esoteric Bible interest? No. You and I need our brains cleaned. And when... When we read this thing, there's something about it that changes your thinking. One of the most profound ways you can change your thinking, if you just want to start at a, at a, at a, at a lightning speed, read the book of Proverbs over and over again. There's 31 chapters. Read one chapter a day, right through the month, and then just start over again for a while. I've done it for a couple of years, not, not recently, but it was, it was one of the habits. If you don't know what to read on a day, look at, your, look at your calendar and say it's the 18th. Turn to chapter 18 of Proverbs and read it. It'll clean up your sex life. It'll clean up the way you do business, your finances. It'll clean up the way you treat your neighbors. It'll clean up your speech. I mean, you read through that thing and it just, I don't know how it does it. You just start thinking differently. We're so accustomed to thinking like the world thinks. We keep listening to the television and all the media and watching how other people live. And we, we model after them. And we hurt ourselves badly. We have to start thinking differently. Even when I've said yes to Jesus... It doesn't mean that all my thinking, though he's given me the Holy Spirit to understand his word, doesn't mean I still think straight. There are things that I can, I can have my thinking all confused. Let me give you an illustration of that. I grew up without a father. 
My parents separated when I was 18 months old. And uh, in our, my early years, till I was 12, my mother didn't really know the Lord either. And so I didn't have modeling. I had some good things taught to me, but also had some strange things. And it's kind of a mixture in those years because we didn't know. It wasn't malicious. Everybody's trying to do the right thing. In fact, I think virtually most everybody is just doing what's right in their own eyes, but without the wisdom of God, it can be just murderous. <laughs> You're doing what's right in your own eyes can kill people. But it seemed right at the time. See, God's ways and our ways are different. You've got to get off doing what seems right to you. And you've got to start doing what seems right to God. And they are drastically different. And if you don't know the Bible, you won't be able to discern between the two. So we were trying to do what's right. But when I got married, particularly, I thought, I don't have a father to model on. I don't know how to be a dad to my children. I don't really know how to be a husband to my wife. Please don't say amen. <laughs> but I didn't have any idea. I didn't know how to do this. I didn't know how to live life. But somehow, in the process of becoming a Christian, I got it in my head that this really was God's book. I mean, there's millions of human books. But this one, God wrote. And I was getting sick of what humans had to say. In fact, the older I get, the worse it gets. I mean, I don't, I'll listen to humans, but I finally come back to this book over and over again. This is the one God wrote. This is different than every other book on earth. This one he wrote. So this one I can trust. And so I literally studied the thing, how do I live life? And well, I'm supposed to forgive, it looks like, and I've got to be honest in my finances, and I've I got to pay my taxes, and I've got to be faithful to my vows in marriage, and I, and, I, and I can't get involved in this sexual stuff, and I can't drink and, and drug, and I, I can't do this, and I have to on and on and on. In fact, I am supposed to pay my bills right away. I'm not supposed to withhold payment. I mean, it just gets right down to practical daily stuff. You know, I just figured, okay, let's just do it as best I could. And, of course, I didn't. I, I failed here and there all the time. But I had in my head that this was the way to live. And as the years have gone by, I have discovered that whenever I obeyed the Lord, whenever I followed his word and not my own impulses, it worked. It has worked. I'm amazed at it. The older I get, the more amazed I am. As I watch the blessings and I watch the provision and I watch the healing, I watch a family emerge that looks downright healthy. How did that happen out of my leadership? Well, yes, it was Mary's. But, <laughs> but I was there. I could have ruined it. How did that happen? I have a heavenly father who fathered me through this thing. This Bible is so important to us. My thinking had to be transformed. So does yours. We still experience demonic temptation and opposition. The devil is there trying to stop you. There is, you're having pressure. You're having thoughts put in your brains that didn't come from you. Haven't you had stuff go through your head and you think, where on earth? What is that? You got somebody trying to, trying to take you down. Being a Christian isn't easy. You got a body that doesn't cooperate. You got a mind that doesn't know how to think straight. And you got a devil who's trying to tempt you. It's not all that much of a mystery when we really look at it. I've made a commitment to make him Lord, but man, there's stuff trying to stop this. And I've got the freedom to choose. So I make some bad choices. Some fall back into bondage through ignorance. In other words, it, it, I, I did it unintentionally. Some people just don't know any better and they fall back into to stuff that puts them in bondage and it's just an accident. But sometimes it's not ignorance. Sometimes it's stubbornness. Our submission to Christ is only partial in some areas. We refuse to let go of certain things. Now, there's areas in my life where it's easy to obey God. I just don't have a problem in certain areas. I watch some people struggle, and I think, well, I'll pray for you, but I don't really understand it, because that isn't a problem for me. But I got my other areas where I sweat bullets to follow God. 
Certain areas are easy, certain areas are hard. How many say amen? Yeah, there's, and I think that that's the way people are. I think it's, some of us, some of our areas of our lives, I can follow God quite easily, but there'll be an area or two, or three, <laughs> where it's really hard. And this one costs me a lot. This one really takes those deep, obedient decisions. How does God correct us? Well, first of all, he speaks to those who are willing to obey. Would you turn with me to Psalm 32? Verse 8 and 9. It's a psalm of, of David. And he has confessed his sins in the first part of that psalm. And then I think he has the Holy Spirit come over him and he literally prophesies. And verse 8 and following there is a prophecy. And notice what God speaking through him, he says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Do not be as the horse or the mule, which have no understanding, whose trappings include bit and bridle to hold them in check, otherwise they'll not come near you. God says, I want you to be in a relation to me like a parent with a child. That's what I think that eye upon you is. You know how a parent... A, a child can just look over at mom, and mom goes, and the child, no, okay, I won't touch that, just walks away. All of, all, you know, when you get in a good relationship with a, of parenting, it doesn't take much more than a glance to direct that child. No. No. But he says, on the other hand, there's some people that I got to put a bit in their mouth and a bridle on them, and I got to push them through circumstances and hardship to obey me. They don't follow my eye. They don't listen to what I say to them. I've got to force them like a stubborn mule into obedience. See, there's certain areas of our life where we're stubborn. Where we're stubborn. How does he speak to those Willing to obey. In verse 8 there, he basically says, God's first plan of attack to correct us is to speak to us. What is his, what's his first te uh, uh, technique? He wants to talk to us. He just wants to tell us what needs to be done. And he does it through his written word. He does it through the inner voice of the Holy Spirit. Uh, he can grieve our heart. Have you ever been in the middle of a sentence and all of a sudden your heart inside you grieved and you said I shouldn't be saying this what did you do did you just keep saying it or did you just stop I, I often just keep going and I think well I'll look so stupid if I stop in mid-sentence but I haven't on occasion actually stopped and said you know I, got, I just got checked I'm not going to continue this it just stopped right there Three, four times in a whole lifetime. No. I, I, I hope I'm doing it more. But the, the Holy Spirit speaks to us. It isn't always with words, but you can be grieved in your heart. Just that grieving. Listen to your heart. Or it can give you peace that passes understanding. Philippians 4 says he gives peace. Uh, you're, you're considering a matter. Or you're moving forward on a matter. And you have this deep abiding peace. Or faith. I think God gives gifts of faith. I told a, a, a brother last night, he was saying, we're trying to make a choice. We don't know whether to be here or to be here. And I said, look inside and let faith lead you. God doesn't guide with fear. We often make our decisions on fear. But God doesn't use fear. God uses faith. And so I said, look at the situation and say, if we go this way, do I feel that God will do a great thing? Or if I go this way, do I feel God will go do a great thing? Where does faith lead you? Listen in here for the faith. Or there's wisdom, word of wisdom, word of knowledge, discernment. God will speak to those who are willing to obey. He also sends his prophets. And I have a marvelous definition there. Prophets are people who tell the truth, sometimes in love and sometimes not. <laughs> there are people who, are, who will come to you and they love you and they speak the truth in love and gently. And isn't that wonderful? It's really nice when that happens. But there's also people that actually only speak to you when they finally have had it to hear with you. And they're so frustrated, they just blah, all over you. And we can say, well, that was done in a bad spirit. 
so I won't listen to it. But if you're smart, you'll listen for the kernels of truth. Because it may have taken that much emotion before they could tell you the truth. Now, they may have said it harshly, may have overspoken it. But a wise person listens for the voice of the Lord in their enemies as well as in their friends. I think you can hear the word of the Lord sometimes on the television. You know, you're watching a newscast or somebody, something's said to you and you just pierces the heart. You read something somewhere. Or an unbeliever can speak it. I've, I've had people say, well, my, my parents are trying to say this to me, but they're not saved. Well, that doesn't mean it isn't the Lord's speaking to you. Listen for the truth. The truth's the truth. It comes from a saved or unsaved. Doesn't matter. Listen to it. Well, what if... What if I don't? What if he tries to speak to me through his written word, or he tries to speak through me, to me through, through the conviction of my heart, or he tries to speak to me through prophets, and I won't listen? Ah, then we drop to plan B. And plan B is that he produces divine discontent in those who refuse his voice. Look with me at Galatians chapter 6. God loves us enough that he won't take no for an answer. Aren't you glad? He's laid a hold of you, and he's not going to let go. He's your heavenly father. And he's determined that you are going to serve him. He's determined that you're going to have a reward in heaven. He's determined you're going to have purpose and direction to your life. He's determined you're going to be free from bondage, whether you want to be free from bondage or not. Your father's not going to take no for an answer, and I think that's wonderful. I'm so grateful he has that commitment because I don't. Galatians 6, verse 7 and 8. Look what Paul says. He says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will, will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. First thing God will generally do is let you reap what you sow. Now, I've had, on frequent occasions in my life, I have sowed bad seed and prayed for crop failure. And I've had it. Lord, I have done a stupid thing. Please, I don't want to reap what I've just sown. I'm sorry. This was really dumb. Have mercy. And I frequently, I've had crop failure. Hallelujah. But you know, there's times when I don't repent, really. And I don't get crop failure. I get to reap what I've sown. You know, I think God goes out of his way sometimes to actually cause us to reap what we've sown, to catch us. If you start speeding, for example, and you, you disregard speed laws, the Lord will probably send his prophets, he'll probably send, he'll speak to you through his word, etc., etc. But then you don't obey him. And so the Lord, in his love for you, makes sure you go through every speed trap in the world. <laughs> they nail you over and over again. You think, this is uncanny. How could they know where I am? <laughs> My children, when I was raising them, would often comment, uh, because we, we, everything they did practically, we, we found out. It all came home. And they it makes me so mad, I can't do anything <laughs> without you knowing. Hallelujah. <laughs> God caught him over and over again. Do you know why he does that? That's not cruelty. That's not meanness. That's love. Do you know what happens to children that grow up and don't pay a price for their, for their rebellion? When, when children get away with one thing after another, that's how you raise a sociopath. And that's how they do these hideous things and have no conscience, no fear at all. The best thing in the world is for you to get caught. Say, man, I can't get away with anything. Well, that's a wonderful attitude. And God's bringing you up short so that you're obedient, so you're not foolish and not injuring yourself and others constantly. It's a good thing that God catches us. I think the more he loves you, I think the more you walk with him, the shorter your leash don't object to it. Don't complain about it. Thank him for it. It's his love for you. He's fathering you. You watch. You read the whole Old Testament. You'll see that he treated the unbelieving nations one way, but he treated Israel another, and he nailed Israel. 
His own people he disciplines. Whom the Lord loves, he disciplines and chasteneth every son who comes to him. That's not mean. That's a father training us. Well, if I don't, if I don't, if reaping what I sow isn't enough, then he'll also confront me and discipline me through his people. Matthew 18, I won't take you there, but it says, first of all, when there's an offense, you take one person and go and confront them, and then you take two, and then you, then you bring in the leaders of the church, and you deal with it. And we do that every so often around here. You have to sit down and really confront a thing. Is it mean? No, not at all. It's meant to be done, Galatians 6.1, with a spirit of gentleness. He says, I want you to do this kind of thing, but I want you to do it gently with an eye to yourself, lest you too be tempted. Don't ever get proud and don't get harsh with people. But you still have to confront them. And then what about the third one? Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Here is, this is an extreme situation. It's what God does when I don't respond to reaping what I sow. I don't respond to the confrontations of believers. It finally can come to this. In Galatians 5, I mean in Corinthians 5, Paul is dealing with a situation where you have a young man who is sleeping with his father's wife. Probably the situation is that he's got an older father. He's probably one of the younger children of the family. And his father's maybe remarried after a death or something like that. And he's married a younger woman. Probably they're close in age, something like that. And they're having an affair. The church knows about it, but it's done nothing to discipline it. It just sort of thought, oh, well couple of young people. And Paul is quite, quite concerned with it. And he says in verse 3, he scolds the church in verse 2 and says, you've been arrogant. This is a terrible attitude you've taken toward this. And then he says, for I on my part, though absent in body, but present in spirit, have already judged him who has so committed this as though I were present. In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled, and I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice how formal he's doing it. This is a formal leader's role. He is taking and, 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 and praying a certain kind of prayer. He says, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that, in, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Now, let your eye go over to chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. Here is the underlying theology as to why Paul's doing this. He says, do you not know, verse 9, that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers. The reviler is a verbal abuser. Nor swindlers, people swindle and thieve in their business, will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, he's not saying that you don't, a stumble here or a stumble there, God's going to suddenly take your, your standing with God away. But he says it very clearly that if you make it a practice, you make this your lifestyle, this is who you become. You'll not go to heaven even though you think you're a Christian. Inheriting the kingdom of God is a very clear statement in 1 Corinthians 15. Paul says, flesh and blood will not inherit the kingdom of God, meaning join the resurrection. So Paul is saying, there are certain things you can do that are so immoral, that are so flaunting of God's ways and God's character, that if you continue in them, go to church all you want, confess all you want, you'll not go to heaven. You'll stand there and you'll be told, depart from me, for I never knew you, you who practice, what? Lawlessness. Christians are not lawless people. We're not perfect people, but we don't flaunt the ways of God. We have chosen to submit to him as Lord. We want to please him. We fail in places, but we want to please him and we earnestly pursue it. Let me give you a, a story of this. Now, this happened long, long ago and far, far away. It has nothing to do with Northwest Church. I had a woman in this church who was a longtime believer. This was not a new believer who was ignorant of, of God's morals or things like that. There can be new believers who just don't know up yet, and, and God knows that, and there's a lot of grace for it. But this was a person who knew perfectly well. In fact, she styled herself as a prophetess, and she would prophesy, minister. She, 
she was married to a man who was in the Navy, and when he was out on deployment, she would sleep with other men. She would have them in her home. She had a nine-year-old boy. He was just a beautiful kid, and he loved the Lord with a passion. Uh, just a passionate young little disciple. And here's Mama sleeping with men in the house. Well, I talked to her. I, can, I, I, I reasoned with her. I, I, all of that kind of thing. And she wouldn't stop it. Finally, I said to her this passage. I said, I'm going to tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to deliver you over to Satan. That the Lord will, 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 will lift that covering from you. That your body may be broken or whatever. That your soul may be saved. I said, I love you. But I'm not going to be your pastor someday at the throne of God and have you be here, depart from me, you who practice lawlessness, and point to me and say, he was my pastor, he never told me. I'm blowing the trumpet. I'm telling you loud and clear, you're in danger. You're in jeopardy of your soul. And I'm putting you outside the church. Well, she did what any normal American Christian would do. She changed churches. Isn't that the solution? You get out your remote, and you just, boink, get a new pastor. Don't like that one? Let's try a new. And she, I, I didn't see her for about a year and a half. And then she, she showed up, and she came to me, and she said, Pastor, she said, you, you got to pray for me. You, you got to pray for me. I said, well, what's happened? And she, she said, I've been to four or five churches. She'd been I was driven as far as an hour. She says, God's left me. I can't feel his spirit. I can't feel his presence. He's no, I can't get God anywhere. You've got to pray for me. Now, God, in this case, hadn't done anything to her physically or allowed that. She hadn't been injured, anything like that. But he'd, lift, he'd simply, in her case, lifted his presence. And she couldn't feel him anywhere. Indeed, she prayed. She repented of that. And the blessing of the Lord came back over her. I've done that about five times, maybe. I, 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 this is not something you pull out and you use indiscriminately. This is a very, very serious thing. You notice the formality with which Paul did it. It's absolutely based on only a certain category, certain number of very serious violations. It's also someone who's unrepentant. They refuse. They are stubborn to the wall. You cannot correct them. They're going to keep doing what they're doing. And in this case, Paul says, he tells you his reason. He says, I'm going to deliver them over to Satan so that, uh, for the destruction of his flesh, so that what? The spirit may be saved. I'm going to pull the protection. Do you realize that that fellow by belonging to the church, was spiritually protected even though he was being immoral. Did you notice that? The devil couldn't get him because he was part of the body of Christ. There's a covering in being in the Lord's church. And, and, and Paul says, I'm going to lift that covering and let the devil have at him until the pain of change is less than the pain of remaining the same. <laughs> We're, where we're stubborn, where we're foolish, is where we refuse to learn because God speaks to us, and we are forced to learn the hard way. We have to taste the bitter fruit. We have to go through the hardship. It has to get so bad, it has to hurt so much, and we finally say, maybe I ought to change. In the, in the book of Proverbs, it calls that person a fool, and it doesn't mean someone's dumb. You could have the IQ, the IQ of Einstein, and be a fool. Because a fool is this person who stubbornly refuses to hear the voice of the Lord, to obey him, and has to be forced by circumstance to change. I would bet everybody in this room has certain areas where we're foolish, certain areas where we've been stubborn, certain areas where we learned the hard way. Wouldn't you agree? Aren't you glad that your heavenly Father loves you so much loves me so much that he won't let us go. That he's determined we're going to be free. He's determined we're going to be uh, fruitful servants of his. Why does he do this? To keep us free to obey him. He has commanded all believers to join him in rescuing people from death. Each of us has a different and important part to play in this task. 
This is the most important work on earth, and he wants to share the glory of it with all of us. We've been called according to his purpose. You and I have been called according to his purpose. Let me tell you what his purpose is going to look like in heaven. Why does he care what you do? Why does it matter if you and I are obedient to him and free? I'll tell you why. He loves us. He loves us with a profound love we'll never understand. And he knows what the real reward of life is. He knows that the greatest glory on earth isn't going to be your bank account, the, the titles you earned, the awards you have on your shelf. Those things are going to be meaningless in heaven. You know what's going to count? The lives we touched for Jesus. That's what's going to count. Picture this. The moment you have died, and suddenly there you stand, looking into heaven, you're there. First of all, you're, you made it. And you knew you would, because you're born again, and your heart's been telling you for years. But there you are, like, man. And it's no longer a theology, it's no longer a vague concept, but you're literally looking at the beauty of the place, and there's Jesus. And you are just... <laughs> taken oh my goodness there's the Lord and then you also see a bunch of people and and you recognize a number of them they're beautiful I mean you would hardly recognize them they're, they are so amazing they're shining like the sun and they're dressed in white and there's there's that daughter of yours that you taught the ways of the Lord. Or there's the neighbor that you went over and prayed for when she had that heart attack. And you were there and you got to minister to the family. Or there's your parent that you prayed for for so long and, and indeed before she died, she came to Christ. And you're looking at them and they come up and say, if it weren't for you, I wouldn't be here. You made a huge difference. You don't know what that prayer you prayed. You don't know what, you're just the witness of your life living next to us. You don't know what difference that made. Thank you so much. That is the reward of heaven. When Jesus talks about rewards, that's it. Not golden streets, not, not a bigger mansion in the sky. The joy of that. He's determined you're going to have that joy. He's determined you are going to be part of his great salvation of the lost. He loves you enough, he's going to include you in the greatest work in the world. You will be part of it. You'll be free, you'll be clean, you'll have your mind changed, and you will serve him fruitfully because this is what life is about. You've been called according to his purpose. Would you pray with me? As I've talked just now, somebody may be aware that there's an area in your life where you've been stubborn. And you would prefer to have him speak to you than go through the divine discontent process. Or maybe you're already partly through it and would like it to stop. It's been hard to let go. It's been hard to say yes. It's been hard to really follow God and mean it from the heart. But right now, as the word's preached, and as you've been reading the word in front of you, you're thinking, no, I do not want to go the hard way. I don't intend to be a, a stubborn donkey on this that has to have a bit and bridle put in my mouth where the Father guides me into his path. I intend to follow his voice, to let him guide me with his eye upon me. Today, I'm telling him yes at a level I've never said yes before, and I mean every word of it. I want him to take and guide my life. If he wants something out of my life, it's going out today. At least as far as I'm concerned, he'll have to provide the power, but my will is completely aligned with his. I just choose to, choose to cooperate. Who needs to say that to the Lord today? Today's my day, Lord. Just lift your hand before him. I'm passing up on divine discontent. I'm going the way of, of, of letting you guide me with your eye upon me. Just keep your hand before him. Hallelujah.
Anybody else? Last night, by the way, there was a, just a prophetic, the Lord stopped me in mid-sentence and said, there's somebody in this room who is not raising their hand because they're hopeless and they feel there's no point. I have tried to change so many times and I couldn't that there's no point in, in, in raising my hand. I will simply disappoint the Lord again. If any one of you is in that position, the Lord literally brought a prophetic word that just to say, don't believe that lie. Give your heart to him. He'll provide the power. Who else needs to raise your hand and say, all right, if that's the case, if it's his power and not mine, I'm saying yes to him. My will is aligned with his today. Praise you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. I just keep him before the Lord. Heavenly Father, we love you, and we, you love us with a, with a love we'll hardly ever understand. But in your great love for us, you will not let us walk into death. You will not let us put a yoke of bondage back on our shoulders, either through lawlessness or legalism. But you're determined for us to be free. You're determined for us to be clean. You're determined for us to have the anointing of the Holy Spirit and to be passionately involved in your service. So this thing that we have held on to, this addiction, this temper, this fear, this self-indulgence, this self-love, whatever it's been that's bound us and we've said no to you, in effect, maybe we didn't say the words, but we meant it with the heart. We just weren't going to obey on this matter. We don't want a bit in our mouth. We don't want a bridle having to force us. We don't want you to let us reap what we sow. We don't want to be confronted. We don't want you to, to, to have to drive us. Today we say we choose the will of God. We choose to obey you. We say yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Would you just even say those words? Yes, Lord. Again, yes, Lord. We submit to you, our Lord. We will follow. We will, we will follow you. But we confess to you, Lord, we're obviously weak. And we need your power. We need the Holy Spirit coming at a new level, a new measure into our hearts to set us free from this thing. And in the authority of Jesus Christ right now, we break any bondage. We break the thing that would hold. We break the lie that has held the mind and given permission. We set our free. We just say, may the Lord set you free. Whom the Son sets free is free indeed. You are free to obey the Lord. And may the power of God fill you and strengthen you afresh. May the Lord show you the next step, whether it be accountability with a brother or a sister, whether it be a new, a, a new intensity of prayer, a new study of the Word. However the Lord's going to guide you, may the Lord show you the next step that's right down the road to freedom. May the Lord guide you and be with you in this. We commit you to His mighty power. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, please click the like button, subscribe, and share it with a friend. For more information, just head to our website, lifelessonspublishing.com. That's lifelessonspublishing.com. There you'll be able to order many of the books Pastor Steve has written.